This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. is up. Welcome to I Saw What You Did. This is a film podcast. My name is Millie. I'm Danielle. And we're back again with you. So glad to be back with you. How are you feeling today? I'm just I'm just curious about how you're feeling. First off, I want to know how you're feeling. Oh, but really? we, we don't you're have really... to do dueling. We don't have to do dueling hellos. I'll go first. It's fine. But I do want to know how you're feeling. I know. I was like, you really you hit that ball back to me real quick. You know, I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. You're so generous. You always let me talk first. And mm. I'm like, I'm going to smack it right back at her. I'm going to volleyball this. <laughs> but no, seriously, go first. Um, I feel gross. So mm. Millie and I have both been guests on a couple of podcasts over the past couple of weeks. Um, and that has made me realize that I can't talk to anyone but you. Like I talk to other people and I feel like a fucking ghoul because all I do is curse and tell disgusting stories. I feel like an actual monster. We're talking to the nicest people. One of them was Christian. Christian as in the actual religion. Christianity. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm going to break this little lady's heart. Like, I don't want to break someone's heart in real time because I keep saying fuck and bullshit. It was I took all of my strength to not curse. And that's when we were guests on uh, the Stage 4 Clingers podcast. Go give a listen. Kate and Claudia are fucking incredible. See, I did it again. I can't help it, even in describing her. And then we were guests on Bananas, our uh, our brothers from another mother here on the Exactly Right Network. And that episode either comes out today or sometime this week. I believe it's today. Yeah. Um, it was the funniest experience. They are so delightful. I fully have a crush on Scotty Landis. <laughs> He has that voice. He's got a dimple. And I'm like, get out of here with that face and being so nice. Get out of here. I feel like, did he make a Fassbender reference? That's all you need. That's all I need anyway. He's smart. He's adorable. And then I'm like, first fucking story they start talking about. My anecdote was about getting fingered at Max Fish in 1997. Right out of the gate. I am a ghoul. Listen, it killed, baby. It doesn't matter. 19, I don't know, 898? I think it was 97 or 98. Max Fish in New York. Absolutely disgusting bar. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just a den of filth. I think that was the first bar that I ever went to when I was in New York. <gasps> I think when I, well, the first time I ever went to New York, I think was like, yeah, 1997, 1998. And I think that was one of the first bars I ever went to. Yeah, it is. It is notoriously filthy. Well, was. It's closed now. Yeah. And yeah, it was like New Year's Eve. Um, I'd wandered down with a friend from Times Square, some other shitty bar. We were already drunk when we arrived and just got progressively more drunk. Sat down at a booth with some folks, started having a conversation, having a good time. The shots were flowing. And then, you know, I was talking to this dude, kind of kissing. Boom, fingered under the table right there. And I was like, you know what? Fine. And we might have to cut this because I feel disgusting telling the story again. (laughs) 
It was a different time, y'all. It was a different time. But I was just like, oh, God, I'm in front of these funny, adorable, very nice dudes just telling constant filth spewing out of my face. It was just it was a weird week. It was a weird week. I felt gross. Listen, you had to pick up the slack for me because I got to be honest (laughs) with you. Like I was pretty much like 49 hours after my second covid vaccine when we recorded that episode. And I was basically like. I was complete fucking dead weight. And I mean, honestly, Kurt and Scotty are the funniest dudes of all time. And I was, you know, sitting there being like, well, can't go toe to toe with any of these fucking geniuses. And (laughs) I'm, I'm unsure if I have a fever right now. I am definitely on Tylenol, but I'm going to go and do their podcast because that's what we fucking do as, that's as grownups and um, had the best time. But I was I said nothing of value <laughs> at all. There was one point where I was like, Millie, you want to weigh in? And I swear I saw like like a cartoon, like cartoon clouds pass over <laughs> your eyes. And I'm like, I, mean, I can't believe I did this to my friend. <laughs> you want to talk about fucking Elijah Wood in the ice storm being like a drift that was me I, I was sitting there like yeah this is all happening right in front of me and i, I felt like i was sitting there telling like rant, like i just interrupted people like hey i went to college with that guy oh hey my dad's from that town i was like that person at the party that says nothing unless it's like tangentially related to their life in any way and then it's just personal facts Anyway, it was fantastic. You are always a dream. It was so funny. And we both have been on. The, we both have uh, like, our. I, I don't know. We've synced our lives in a weird long distance way. Yes. So today we both found out before we started recording that we both reformatted our SD cards uh, without even telling each other. Crazy. But also we were both recovering from our second COVID vaccine in the same week. Yes. So effectively, when you listen to this episode and we talk about these films, please understand that we actually both watch these films under the side effects of the second COVID vaccine, which, you know, is it's so weird that we both had done that at the same time. (laughs) Again, unplanned, unplanned. We just synced it up. (laughs) Completely. And so that might affect the quality of the recollections that you will hear today. But, you know, try not to judge us too harshly. I'm just going to tell you right off the bat that I had to watch my movie again, even though I'd already seen it before, you know, chose it because I'd seen it before. Thought I haven't seen it in a long time. I'm going to rewatch it. Press play right as that fever was kicking in. Yeah. I'm sweating. I've got chills. I'm passing in and out of consciousness. It was a mess and i'm watching this movie and i had so i was taking notes so i have today when we talk about my movie you're going to hear me talk about it in a realistic way like normally because i had to rewatch it and redo my notes but i also left in my fever notes good listen i think terrence malick would want it that way i think i think he's very amenable to people's fucked up uh state of mind when they're watching his films you know what i mean I agree. And I think it it was so beautiful. I mean, it was a beautiful experience. I don't do hard drugs. I don't do any <laughs> drugs, really. You just did that Moderna is all Get you have Get that Moderna in you. Get that second <laughs> Vax up in you. And all of a sudden you're tripping balls. Uh, yeah. Was your pet, was your beautiful, lovely dog, Sophie, at all freaked by your fever experience? Because Carrot and I are now in a fight because of mine. Oh, really? No, she was like fucking Florence Nightingale. Oh, yes, that is my 
you know, number one girl for life. She sat by my bedside and was just like, I'm chilling. Like whatever, whatever this is, I'm unsure, but we're riding it out. (laughs) She did this, even though my fucking parents are in the other room. Right. And they could ostensibly help me, but they were like, you're fine. Right. You're, you're a grown woman with a fever. Like you've, you're, you're fine. Your parents were straight up gaslighting you because they're like, you don't even have a fever. I texted you about that, too. I think under my fever, I was like, (laughs) they're gaslighting me. They they believe that I don't have a fever. And what the fuck? You know, and it was an all caps text conversation for sure, because I'm like, you definitely have a fever. I felt wild for four days straight. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I was in a full like John Frankenheimer paranoia about this shit. Like I was like, and the fever keeps going up. I don't know what they put in my body. Uh, but you know, blah blah blah, and you know, my parents are out there going, "Ah, fuck you!" And then I'm texting you like everything while watching my film, um, and then having like dreams, like going in and out of sleep and having dreams about Will Smith fucking a guy in the back of like a stagecoach that's being driven around New York City. I'm like, "Yo, this is a wash!" Like this entire two and a half days. Who the fuck uh, knows what happened? <laughs> but I want to know what happened with Carrot because if Carrot, first of all, I'm I'm not. I got to be honest. Like Carrot does his own thing whenever the fuck he wants to. Yeah. So there's a part of me that's like, you know, I don't know how he actually reacted, but I'm like, he was probably a little like. All right, what's going on here? Are you feeding me today? What's up? He was pressed because he he does a cuddle. He loves a cuddle, but he was mad because he likes to he likes to sleep with me in the most inconvenient position possible. So he will sleep directly between my knees. So my back is just always killing me because there's just 17 pound cat between my fucking knees every night. <laughs> so I can't twist or turn or he'll sleep like on my head or near my face. And none of that was happening this time. So every time he jumped up on the bed, I was like, no, 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 I can't do it. (laughs) And he kind of had to curl up on the corner and the bottom. But what really fucked us up and what really I think has put us in this fight that he continues on having and I continue projecting onto him is that his feeding schedule is fucked up because I didn't know what time it was. I didn't even know what day it was at a certain point. So he'd be like, feed me. And I'm like, I don't know, man. The light's still up. It feels like it's only noon. And I'd go out and I'm like, oh, it's six o'clock. You're right. You're hungry. I get it. I get it. But he's mad at me now, days later, because for a couple of days, he didn't get his snacks on time. (laughs) He didn't have his robot (laughs) butler there to dispense the goods. Listen, we're going to talk about bratty kids in my movie today. And Carrot seems like he might be a one, if you know what I mean. He's definitely the Tobey Maguire and Ice Storm character. (laughs) I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start calling him Libets. He's Libets Casey. He He's just like Libets Carrot. <laughs> Libets Carrot. Fucking stumbling around high and shouting for things, for, for people to give him things. I know. That's why you know that pets are number one and humans are number two. Because they're chilling. Like, as yeah. far as I'm concerned, like, I'm feeling this bad. And I got two humans who raised me in the other room and they're like, sorry, I'm watching Bob loves Abishola right now. So can't, can't be of any help to you. Don't care what the fuck you're going through. But that dog was chilling. Like the dog dog. was there. Sophie was on it. She's like, look, this motherfucker might die. Somebody's got to sound the alarm. Like, I don't know what's happening here, but I have to at least be able to bark. I have to be in barking distance of this. Yeah. Like we'll see we'll see what happens when this is all over. The the tale that will be told <laughs> of the people that stepped in or didn't step in. 
<laughs> Look, Sophie's a true, true ride or die kind of dog. And your parents are now going to be written out of the will I'm going to make you write that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Sorry, y'all. We saw oh. that behavior during COVID, during my vaccine times, and nope. Well, I, I want to say for the record as well, when my parents got their shot, that they were the biggest crybabies fucking <laughs> ever. Okay? Because they got their shot together on the same day. And of course, you know, they got the, their shot a while ago. And when they came home, they were like, cruising like they were just like cool we're you know we're doing the thing and then it was like again six hours after they got their shot that's when they started being like mm, i don't know and then by the time the next day rolled around they were fucking crying complaining like they were just like god i feel so terrible i don't know what's happening blah blah blah. i want some tea i got them shit like i went and got them tea i was asking how do you feel i'd like to take her temperature now i'll fucking do whatever it takes because that's just the way I am. I'm reverent towards my my family. And <laughs> How then, dare you? <laughs> and then it was like the minute it was over, they were like, "Oh, what's the big deal?" And I'm like, "Oh, give me a break." Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you had to do it double time. Yeah, you were taking care of two people with like wild fevers and aches. Look, Four get two. your vaccine. Go through this experience with us. Have a fever. Watch these two movies we're about to tell you about. That's right. It's the only way. The only way. So how are you today, Millie? Truly? <laughs> well, I mean, I have had a bad day. OK, I'll say it. I've had a bad day. <laughs> um, I had that kind of day where I had to work with somebody who uh, was taking me to task on uh, my entire professional career as a person in <laughs> film and um, uh, simply could not believe that a woman could do a job in film. Like, just uh. simply couldn't believe it and offered their services to me to say like, oh, uh, yeah, I know you've had this job for a long time. But, you know, if you ever need somebody to do your job that isn't you and is a man, let me know. <laughs> Look, this is a conversation we have to save for the red 10. It's not fit for TV. Remember those? <laughs> do you remember those commercials that were like, it's too hot for TV? Yes. We it's Jerry take Springer's to the- too hot for TV. Yes. We have to mail order this. We have to take this conversation to the inner sanctum. But I am sorry that happened to you. Yeah. Listen, this has happened so many times in my life. Truly. That's sad, but it has. Um, You forget I used to be a DJ, too. So I've (laughs) often had my knowledge challenged by men. It's more just an exhaustion when it comes down to it. Having a bad day at this point, when, when it comes to this is simply just exhaustion. Like, I can't even muster the anger to fight anybody about it anymore. I'm just like, well, I don't know what you want me to do. I just simply have been doing something for almost 20 years and I can't fight you. Like, you just, you're just going to, I'm going to have to take the L in some way and I will, um, you know, go do some cardio and get over it. I mean, you know what you can do? Apologize for your existence, pop a Viactive, and go crawl into a grave. <laughs> That's what they want you to do. <laughs> That's all you can do. Just go into a grave, cover yourself with dirt, and peace out. Exactly. <laughs> and leave leave your headstone blank so that someone can come and chisel, you know, I'm sorry that I know I knew things. <laughs> they should have never given women books. <laughs> you know, I um 
it's a shame because, you know, I've been working in movies and in television for, like I said, 17 years. And I do know good guys in this in this line of work. I yeah. definitely do. And it's a shame because you'd think, OK, it's 2021. Maybe we would know more good guys. But there's still there's some stragglers. There's a couple of them that still are like, yeah. You couldn't possibly have knowledge about this subject. And, you know, I'm going to tell you that. But they're like the walking dead zombies of the of that world. I think things are changing because there's people like us and we have we have this is why we have a podcast. Exactly. And, you know, honestly, like like I said, it's just sheer exhaustion. But it happened. And, you know, whatever. Um, You learn the lessons. You keep learning them even after so long. And, you know, I, I one day. When I'm dead, I will look back from, you know, a vista somewhere (laughs) in another dimension. I have so many thoughts that are not fit for this because it will get me put in jail, but we will talk about it. Yeah. Well, but I, uh, you know, I I was trying to be, um, you know, I was trying to perk up a little bit before we pressed record. I was basically like, all right, you had a bad day and you're fucking annoyed. But you know what? The minute you guys came on, like the minute I saw you and our producer, Alexis, and our engineer, Annalise, the minute that I was like in the space of this podcast, I was like, fuck that motherfucker. This is the real (laughs) shit right here. I was like, I'm in a good, I'm in a good mood. But, you know, that makes me happy. Of course. But, you know, simply because you asked, I did have a bad day, but it's better now. Of course. Will it be markedly improved if I sing? You had a bad day. <laughs> Is that Coldplay? Who's I don't even know. Who I don't even know. I don't, that's, it's, it's beyond my years, but just enough that I like heard it on the radio a lot when I was at work. Yeah, I feel like Coldplay. Do they only make songs that play on American Idol when people win or lose? I don't know. Does that mean? No, they also make songs for old people to sing in choirs. <laughs> Well, dude, they're doing it, baby. <laughs> Let's get into these movies before we get sued across the board. <laughs> we're coming back with something. Why don't you tell the, the folks what we're doing this week? Back with a bang. We're revisiting the theme of true crime. That's right, folks. The very first episode of I Saw What You Did was our favorite true crime movies, right? And um, now we're coming back with more. There's a shit ton, by the way, of true crime movies or movies that are based on true crimes, I guess you could say. Exactly. And hopefully this will appease the um, the people in the comments who keep saying things like, why wasn't Tremors part of your From Beneath You It Devours theme? Because we're going to come back to it. We're going to do it again eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, recurring themes folks get into it <laughs> get into it don't think that it, it's one and done with some of these um but honestly there are quite a few true crime movies and the reason why i know that is because you know karen and georgia who are our benevolent bosses here at the exactly right network they asked us a while ago to kind of put together a list of true crime movies and I did. First of all, I have to apologize to you because I know you were probably like, let me take a crack at that shit. And I was like, OK, oh, no. my brain I was like, is so warped that I did it within 10 minutes of them yeah. asking me. 
Yeah, Millie sent me a spreadsheet within legitimately 10 minutes with 150 movies on it. And I was like, dope. Like, I have other things to do. I'm going to go take a shower. Thank you, friend. I know. I was like, what the fuck? Um, why am I broken in this way? Um, to where I'm just sort of like, oh, shit, I got an Excel file for you. I mean, quite honestly, like I said, I've been doing this for so long that... I had. I got to be honest. I already had a spreadsheet with true crime movies on it, and I just took that and added a bunch. But it was really like this is my programming brain yeah. at work. So I was like, "Fuck it, we they got a list, and there's like a couple hundred movies on there. They'll be fine." <laughs> but it really did make me think. Like, oh, there's a lot of movies that are based on crimes, and obviously that makes sense because crimes are interesting and they're historical and you know there's they're 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 kind of just like inherently cinematic a lot of times because the details or the people involved so it makes sense that there's a lot you know and a lot of true crime just grips the nation and they just want to know more about what happens and after or they want to see what happened in a full story because they only got snippets of it from the news or like it's really you know and especially when a lot of these films were made back in the before internet times that was how you had to find out information about the full story you had to wait till someone wrote a book about it or until someone did a film about it yeah and i and to be honest the movies that we picked this time around i would say one is an absolute classic like Mm. In my opinion. I mean, it's in my top five of all time. And I know I say that about a lot of movies, including Memphis Belle and Dirty Dancing. But Your top five is a top 50. <laughs> I know. It's like if I don't mention that Memphis Belle is my actual favorite movie every episode, then we're frauds. But your movie this week is just it's so iconic. It launched a thousand ships and it's, it will be so interesting yeah. for you to talk about it. And then, you know, with with my film, I actually kind of thought. Oh, I would like to try to go into another direction crime wise, like the confidence game, that Mm -hmm. whole because that is actually very fascinating to me. I don't know if you feel the same way. Absolutely. I love that, like, you know, the infiltrating of a life or a story or something. And I think your film should be a classic. Like, I think I think time will tell and it will prove out that this film is also a classic yeah again it's one of those we talked about this with wonder boys it feels like kind of a sleeper i mm-hmm. mean it kind of was it was a big deal when it came out for like one reason or another but um yeah i think people are rediscovering it again in that wonder boys way where now you know now that we don't have video stores we just have like video on demand or you know amazon or you know that kind of stuff and i think it you see it on these services and you're like, oh, yeah, that movie. I should watch that movie. Um, and, and I think that that's what's happening with my movie. Yeah. But um, love hearing about a scam. So that's and that's a crime. So let's, you know, let's consider it, people. Well, let's let's get into our film so we can start talking about these confidence folks. Is that the new is that a good term for the that's a nice general I like I like confidence folks. Confidence you're like, what folks. is she what's she talking about? Is she yeah. talking about like a the name of a, a home for the elderly? Like what is going on there? Yeah, because I feel like confidence man seems like a very outdated term. Anyone can be a con a confidence trickster. So Look, the yeah. scam goddess podcast and all of the scams that have come before will prove that cons are eternal. <laughs> cons are eternal. <laughs> Oh, my God. So what's your film? So my movie for this week for the theme of true crime films is a movie from 1993 
It was directed by Fred Skepsi, and it's called Six Degrees of Separation. Oh, this is a Kandinsky, a double, one painted on either side. May I see? Yes, of course. Extraordinary. What makes it exceptional is that Kandinsky painted on either side of the canvas in two radically different styles, one wild and vivid, the other somber and geometric. My God. <laughs> we flip it around for variety. Chaos control. So this film is an adaptation of a play of the same name that was written by the playwright John Gare in 1990. And the play was based on the real-life crimes of this man, David Hampton, who was this upper-middle-class kid from Buffalo who came to New York City in the early 1980s, and he basically started telling people that his name was David Poitier and that he was the son of the famous actor Sidney Poitier, which he was not. And honestly, he was doing it because it got him into like Studio 54 and he was getting like free meals at fancy restaurants and he was meeting celebrities. Right. Like it was kind of a way for him to have access to the city in a lot in a lot of it. Right. right. So on top of this, he was also conning a bunch of kind of famous people into letting him stay with them and to give him money including people like Leonard Bernstein, Calvin Klein, Melanie Griffith, <laughs> Gary Sinise, which I think is outrageous for some reason. Was he even famous in the 80s? <laughs> I mean, he, all I know is that he grifted Lieutenant Dan. <laughs> Need I say more? Um, but and then a bunch of other people, too, like not just celebrities uh, or actors, but, you know, like high society people, like people that owned things in New York. Right. Yeah. And his basic grift each time was that, you know, he'd just been robbed or he had had his thing stolen and he missed a plane to L.A. to meet his famous dad, Sidney Poitier, and that he knew the people's children from college, like an Ivy League school. Um, and eventually he was arrested. Uh, and convicted after a few years, you know, of just running this grift. Years. And yeah. And he um, served some jail time. So John Gare, who wrote the play Six Degrees of Separation. So he was inspired to write this play after hearing about David Hampton from his friends who were named Inger McCabe and Osborne Elliott. I mean, and, what? I know. Inger McCabe Elliott. That is that's that a great fashion line name. Oh, my God. I mean, I'm Southern. It sounds like a Southern Gothic name. It's amazing. And Osborne does, too, for that matter. But so they were actually victims of David Hampton. And they're portrayed in the film by Stockard Channing and um, Donald Sutherland. And when the play came out in 1990, it was this huge success. And it was nominated for a Pulitzer and everything. And David Hampton, who was already out of jail by this point, he basically tried to, like, cash in on it. And... um. He actually tried to hold his own press tour when the yeah. play came out and he was like <laughs> crashing producer meetings and he actually tried to sue John Gare for like a hundred million dollars for a copyright violation of a story and it was dismissed and everything. Um, but he continued to do the grift 
even after the movie came out, like the play had come out, the movie came out and he was still kind of going out there telling people that he was somebody else. I wonder if, if that worked because it's like a whole new crop of rich people showed up in New York. Absolutely. And, you know, again, we talk about this a lot, but it was kind of pre-internet. So it was kind of like before you could actually really like confirm a lot of stuff about somebody. And, you know, up until his death in 2003, he was doing this and he passed from complications from the AIDS virus. And, um, you know, there's there's actually an obituary in The New York Times about him that I mean, it's actually very sad. Like he at the towards the end of his life, I think things got really kind of grim for him. Um, but he was gr- he was like a lifelong professional grifter and was telling people that he was somebody else for a very long time. So let's talk about the movie Six Degrees of Separation now. Yeah. I do. I want I just want to interject and say that I think it would be very funny if towards the end of his life, he was telling people that he was Denzel Washington's son and people would be like, aren't you like 30 years older than him? (laughs) What, (laughs) sir? Yeah, I mean, honestly, there's a lot of potential roads that could have that could have been driven down. But um, (laughs) so the movie Six Degrees of Separation. Now, I mentioned earlier it was directed by Fred Skepsey, who's this Australian director, and he's made many films over his career. But um, this movie of his is notable for being it was one of Will Smith's first major roles. And it was kind of at the same time that he was just having wild success with the fresh prince of bel-air so it was it was his first major movie role it was yeah it was first major movie role i mean he was technically in two other movies and i think the first one was like an ensemble cast of like young people um but his first kind of standout role like in that toby Maguire way where he was kind of t- the lead of the film even though there was right. a lot of other people in the film with him um but definitely his kind of breakout in terms of his career I would say. And in this film, he plays a man named Paul and he's a gay black man um, who runs this confidence trick on this successful art dealer and his wife. And in the movie, they're named Flanders and Oweza Kittridge, which again is very Southern Gothic. (laughs) When your real life victims are named Ingar, (laughs) like, like, where are you going to go from there? Weeza and Flan are like very toned down com- comparatively. Yeah, all these very, very incredible names. Um, and again, they're played by Stalker Channing and Donald Sutherland. And, you know, they're living in a penthouse apartment in New York City. They have tons and tons of like fine art all over the place that they're constantly freaking out about. And the interesting thing is that the movie actually does feel very much like a play. Um, And and you can tell this because the actors are kind of performing their lines in this very like theatrical way. And there's like lots of like monologues that characters are doing. And I mean, honestly, like (laughs) normally this kind of thing drives me a little crazy, but for this movie, I actually did think that was a cool technique If only because I feel like this movie and the story is kind of based on a kind of a general idea of performance, right? Because Paul is sort of performing an identity as his grift, you know? I liked it because it it heightened the comedy of it. Like it kind of gave it a more screwball sort of feel. Absolutely. Because this movie is scathing. (laughs) like when it talks about the people that they're talking about like this world of oiza and flan like it's scathing and we'll get into that 
honestly in a second. I have a lot to say about that. But the thing about Paul is that his performance of this person that's not him um if, if he's successful he gets access to this world that the kittredges sort of inhabit but he has to pretend that he's like rich and celebrity adjacent and well-bred and he's an ivy league educated person and that you know he sort of appreciates like fine art and travel and, and that sort of shit like immediately after he shows up at their doorstep first of all he shows up to their doorstep and he's like, I've just been stabbed in Central Park. <laughs> okay. Which is jarring. We've talked about strangers approaching us on the street with like a crazy vibe. And this is the craziest. In New York City, if I don't know you and you show up stabbed on my doorstep or here or here, like your, your neighbor <laughs> who had the head wound. Yes. Door is closed, sir. I'm calling an ambulance for you. Have a great night. I will wait here. I will make sure I look out the peephole and make sure they, they grab you. They gotcha. And then we're done. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh com- completely. Like you do not owe people the hospitality of your southern neighborly <laughs> kindness in a major <laughs> U.S. city. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. But basically, he shows up at their doorstep with a stab wound and he's like, you know, he starts kind of going into the grift where he's just like, I've been mugged in Central Park. And, you know, I'm I'm friends with your children from Harvard. OK, so and they're kind of sitting there. They're actually having dinner with one of their friends who's visiting some like art dealer guy from South Africa, who's played by Sir Ian McKellen, by the way. And so they kind of just like let him in and they, and they actually like stitch him up and he kind of just starts going into this whole thing where he's like, here's my fabulous life. I will cook you dinner from scratch right now with the shit that you have in your refrigerator, which is which floors them because they're like they never cook and they mm-hmm. always go out to eat. And so they're just sort of like somebody wants to cook for us. And, um, you know, he's sort of like doing the thing where he is like presenting this like incredible person and he's telling them he tells them oh i'm working on my thesis about catcher in the rye and the imagination and and then he slips it in that he's the son of Sidney poitier but first it's the full-on charm initiative absolutely he comes in with the charm and with like credentials right um because he needs to give his like rich person bona fides right up front and then he drops the bomb that he is the son of this like famous actor that they all know of and they're falling all over themselves about it because he this is one of the funniest parts of the movie to me and i think it's just because we know more now than we did in 93 i know what you're gonna say yes so he tells them that City Pwani is working on a movie version of Cats. And at first they're like, a movie version of Cats? By the end of the conversation, they all want to be cast. Yes. But the notion that Sidney Poitier, <laughs> if he had his choice of projects, would be like, you know what? I saw some cats dancing on Broadway. That's my jam. That alone would have knocked that grift to the ground for me. Like, sir, you have to get out of this. Get the fuck out right now. There's no way that the king of stage and screen of this nation is even even knows that this play exists. Get out of here. (laughs) And honestly, okay, you know, I've talked about my own personal experience with seeing the actual movie (laughs) version of Cats that came out. Like it was the last movie I saw before quarantine. Right. And part of the reason why I think I never fucked with cats up until that moment is because 
of the stereotype of rich people complaining about cats. And I think a lot of it was that they broke the fourth wall and people would like touch you. And rich people don't want to be touched in the middle of a fucking theater <laughs> with their goddamn opera goggles and shit or their <laughs> opera binoculars. They're like, oh, God, they come out from the stage and touch you with their hands. These actors. It's nah. like sleep no more with like kitty cats. <laughs> I can't do this shit. But yeah, and but here's the thing. <laughs> as much as they fucking hate cats, man, they are stoked when Paul is like, yo, I can get you in as an extra. And they're like, fuck yeah. Guess what? You're spending the night here. We're gonna give you $50 because you're just such an amazing kid. And that way you have somewhere to stay so you can catch your flight to LA the next day to meet up with your famous dad, right? And amazing. And here's the thing. I mean, I gotta say, it is it's not lost on me, by the way, that Sidney Poitier keeps coming up in this film because you know, essentially he was one of the most successful black movie stars of all time. Right? right? Still is, still alive. Um, and he's probably the most successful black actor coming out of the classic era of Hollywood for sure. And, you know, a lot of that is because he appealed to both black and white audiences. You know, he was in a lot right. of really important films and he broke a lot of barriers and he did a lot of movies about race. Um, but also, you know, when it comes down to it, like these people know him and they love him in that way. That's sort of like, wow, he's a black actor that we know and we like. And, you know, were these like high minded, like, sophisticated New York intellectual types and we love a Sidney Poitier. We love it. Right. Yes. And you know, honestly, it's, it's, it's not lost on me either that Will Smith is playing a character who calls himself Sidney Poitier's son. So, you know, there's a lot mm -hmm. going on in this movie. I, I will get to that in just a second as well. But when it comes down to it, like I said before, the film pulls like no punches in terms of, the ridiculousness of these people of this white upper class in New York, um, they're like the Kittredges are just hysterically obsessed with their lifestyle because here's what happens. So so they let Paul spend the night in, in one of their kids bedrooms, you know, obviously their kids away at Harvard or wherever. And they wake up the next morning and catch Paul having sex with a male sex worker. And they completely fall apart. Oh, they like, unravel. It's And that that moment is like, that's the best moment of the film for me because it is that immediate switch. And it still feels like a play and it still feels very theatrical because it's that immediate switch from the reverence of Sidney Poitier's son to the you black bastard get out of my house. Absolutely. Because here's what they're doing. They're like running around the house, checking to make sure that their paintings are still there. Right. Right. Like in that way, that's like, oh, my God, there's a gay person. There's a black person in our house. Oh, my God. What if they stole our shit? And it's that very like it went from zero to 100, you know, when mm -hmm. it came down to it, like they they weren't as like liberal as they thought. They immediately went to like the criminal mind, you know, and where's our stuff? Where's our important right. stuff? And here and here's what's even more interesting and why this movie is just wow. It's really textured, in my opinion. But. They go to the police immediately about this situation, but then they also realize that they have this like wild story to tell. Okay. Yes. And it becomes this like currency for their rich white friends to hear about this like crazy thing that's happened to them. And it helps them sell the art that they're trying to sell. And it makes them fascinating. And I mean, I just sort of like, wow, this is like, this is a lot. I mean, it's that thing where it just keeps kind of layering on 
things to talk about. And so I have to move into this because this is so predictably, they all have terrible relationships with their kids. Right? <laughs> it's the best. It is the best representation of this I've ever oh seen. Oh, my God. And then when, it, when I talk about scathing, it's really this part that really crystallized it for me. Because, OK, so they've sent their kids to Ivy League schools and their kids are like spoiled brats from the ninth level of hell. Right. Like these kids are screaming in their faces about how much they hate their parents and that they never do anything for them. And it's played up to such a cartoonish degree in this movie that it kind of reminds me of like the kids from like a John Waters movie. Like, yeah, it's like a Taffy Davenport <laughs> situation. And they're like, you know, fuck you mom and dad you fucking suck and you're like wow and the parents just stand there and take it there's no response from the parents good or bad yeah well there's no whoopings it's like well let me try to rationalize with this like psychotic kid of mine that i've made into a a a spoiled monster um it's just like you know it's just kind of bickering there's no like punishment for them right and (laughs) this is part this is one part that completely cracks me up where one of their sons, okay, who, by the way, I have to say this son is played by Oz Perkins, who weirdly enough is the son of a famous movie star because he's the son of <laughs> Anthony Perkins, right, from Psycho and many, many other amazing films. So he's in the movie. He's like a wrestler or something. And he yeah. freaks out about how his mom gave Paul his like pink shirt to wear after he was stabbed, after he showed up to the door, stabbed. And he goes, he's like screaming in his parents' face. And he's like, I love that shirt. My first shirt for my new body. And you gave that shirt away. I can't believe you. I hate this life and I hate you. <laughs> it is seriously oh the God. fucking funniest. It's like the funniest thing. <laughs> I lost it when I saw that. Scene I love, I love a jock, time. a jock with emotions, right? It's so fucking so funny. So good. And he has nothing else to complain about. That's a, that's the beauty of these scenes with the kids is that the kids are all complaining about things that they have to manufacture because their lives are perfect. Their exactly. lives are fine. They have everything they want and need. So all they have to complain about is pink shirts. And they're just and all they're doing is just sort of like berating their parents for like, you know letting a stranger in the house, but it's done in this like way that's just like insane. And I mean, it really is fucking funny. I love the way that that came about because you've got like this cameo from, well, like, not a cameo, just a smaller role from Anthony Michael Hall playing this friend of theirs who really is devious and who really was this kind of devious presence in their lives. And he's the entry point for Paul to gain access to this society. So essentially uh, the Anthony Michael Hall character meets Paul when Paul is sort of hustling on the street and they end up going back to um, Trent. That's Anthony Michael Hall's character's name in the movie. They end up going back to Trent's place. And then, you know, Paul kind of sticks around for a few months and Trent teaches Paul the ins and outs of how to be this like rich white person. And at one point, <laughs> he tells Paul that he should always gift rich people jam. <laughs> <laughs> cloth covered jam because he does later in the film as an apology he sends a gift basket with some jam and they like they drop it like they're holding a human heart <laughs> like he was like oh god jam he's like, he knows us <laughs> god, that really expensive jam he just <laughs> dialed our hearts and then you know obviously like at some point like you said paul sort of 
bolts, you know, after uh, many months and then, you know, steals the address book. And that's presumably how he even knew who the Kitsch Ridges were. And here's the interesting thing for me, though, about this, about the Trent character and Paul as a character. And, um, you know, the actual David Hampton, like I said, was gay. And I have read that there was sort of a lot of resistance, I think, to Will Smith being a full gay character in this film, um, which he later actually apologized for because there is a kiss that happens between Paul and Trent, like the first night that they meet. and. From what I understand, like Will Smith apparently refused to actually kiss Anthony Michael Hall and they had to make it look like he did from some kind of like camera angle trick. Mm -hmm. And I think it wasn't actually that long after the movie came out that I think Will Smith basically said, well, you know, I wish I hadn't have have played it like that. I, I just wasn't mature enough to fully commit to this role and I regret it or whatever. Um, but it is a shame to know that, I think, because I feel like. Paul's sexuality is a part of the movie and it kind of stinks to know that the actor who plays Paul is kind of unwilling to like flesh out that side of him in the movie. Yeah. So that's kind of a bummer. And you can tell, you can tell in the movie that they don't kiss. It's like he yeah. moves his head kind of by him really quickly. Yeah. And I just felt like that could have been, you know, I mean, it's obviously like you, you didn't know at the time and maybe what you know now, uh, hopefully doesn't completely ruin the thing for you. But it's that thing where like, yeah, I feel like there could have been a way more textured story there if that was if he was willing to kind of, you know, be the actor at that time yeah. that he could have been. You know, he was young. I mean, obviously, I think that he felt like in some way it was going to sabotage his career. And again, this was like the early 90s. I mean, shit, we still have problems with representation now. It goes to show you that that is a persistent um, problem and issue that people who want to appear as incredibly liberal and inc incredibly open are still the people who behind closed doors are telling their clients, you shouldn't do that because it will ruin your career, not just affect your career. It will ruin your career if you do that. It will ruin your career if you come out. It will ruin your career if you, um, you know, take this role. And, you know, I think there's more acceptance now in some ways, but mm -hmm. that's still pretty much the, the name of the game is still money. And if, Will Smith was going to lose people money on the heels of being very successful as a rapper and an actor in a TV show. I can see how that was someone's central worry, unfortunately. Yeah. Not like I want him to develop as an actor and I want him to be comfortable enough to play this role, but we want to make sure that he can still make us money after this. I'm sure that was going on in his head a little bit. Yeah, sure, sure. It's just such an interesting thing to think about um, when you think about what he did with this character. So then, you know, essentially, you know, there's, there's this other story in the movie where Paul meets these like two, um, uh, white struggling kind of hippie types that are like living in this like really small apartment in another part of New York city. And, um, you know, Paul ends up like, he's been found out by the Kittredges and he's been found out by all the kind of like rich elite, like New York art scene people. So now he's kind of like hanging out in another part of New York and he's, and he's working these two young people. And the interesting thing about them is he ends up moving in with them into this like shitty apartment. And then he starts giving them tips on how to be, this like rich sort of upper class society person and mm -hmm. the funny thing is, is that paul ends up taking the boyfriend out to this like fancy restaurant and they like rent tuxedos and you can see the wheels are turning in this boyfriend's head like he's basically like i'm loving this life i'm wearing a tuxedo and i'm eating expensive food and i am way into it 
And, you know, what ends up happening is that the, the boyfriend ends up having sex with Paul at the end of the evening. In a handsome cab. In a, <laughs> is that what, did I call him a stagecoach? I mean, yeah. yeah, I don't know why I called it a I clearly don't know my, my carts and wagons very well. Um, but yeah, he was, they basically like are taking a trip around the park or whatever. And Will Smith's basically like, hey, let's fuck. And he's like, okay. Um, <laughs> it's such a brilliant scene. Yeah. It, but it's interesting to me that Paul is now handing out the education on how yeah. to be this classy, rich society person. And, you know, essentially it, it, it all boils down to this is that everyone in this film is seduced by money in some way. Right. It doesn't matter yeah. who you are. Even the rich people that have the money are still seduced by their own lifestyle. Um, and it's just so interesting. I mean, for, for I got to tell you, man, for me, this is the type of movie that I could like write my own thesis about. Right. I mean, I could yeah. really go on one about this movie. And I just think it discusses so much about, you know, obviously race and class and sexuality, but also just sort of like social mobility and celebrity and respectability politics, like whatever, like you name it. There's like there's a lot going on in this film and there is actually i have found there is some great like academic style writing about this film if you felt like beat in those jstor streets at all um <laughs> but i i have to say i'm so glad that i got to watch this movie again even if it was under a fever haze of a yeah. second vaccine because I do remember watching this movie, but honestly, I don't think I, I, I finished it. I mean, I remember when it came out simply because I was curious about the Will Smith thing. But I, I was like, oh, this is I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> I'm going to turn it off. I didn't understand the ending when I first saw it. I did not. Under and I, I, I have to be honest with you. I don't know that I understand it now, but yeah. I'm OK with it because I can see that the emotional moment leading up to it was about. I mean, I think I get it, which is and this is this is a movie I don't mind spoiling for you guys. Sorry. Sure. Um, but I do feel like it's important to talk about because I think that um, what I get from that is Stalker Channing kind of, you know, this Weeza character kind of breaks out of the bounds she's put herself in and she breaks out of this role and she breaks out of her, you know, her acting and becomes a real person for a minute when she's talking about Paul and kind of asking her friends and asking herself, you know, what have we done to this kid? And why did we, you know, let, you know, what, what, what did it mean for him to be in our lives and what lessons are we taking from this? And why are we not willing to really look closely at ourselves and our own behavior in this? Mm -hmm. And then she walks out of this, you know, this, this event and, you know, starts walking down the street and gets her stride back and starts smiling and skipping up, you know, on the east side. Like she's just I think that was the the lesson there. That was the important thing that maybe um John Gare wanted us to know or that this, you know, Fred Skepsi wanted us to know is that it's like, yeah, you can be a real person for a minute, but you're always going to slip back into the most comfortable role. Right. And I didn't get that when I watched it in the first place. I was like, why is she fucking smiling? <laughs> Yeah. And, that, and that's, I think, this the scathing part of it is that you realize like, oh, you can have your moment of clarity about everything that you've experienced. And, and you can have that moment in front of the people that need the lesson, but that ultimately <laughs> you don't care. Like ultimately yeah. the minute like that's over, you are done. And you and and I think, again, when it comes to performance, like and we talk a lot about that kind of performative aspect to things now, I think more more now than I think we did back then. 
But it is that thing where like maybe her her outrage was a performance in that moment. And then when she snaps back to reality, it's like, well, I'm rich and I don't ultimately don't give a shit. Yeah. Um, it ultimately doesn't affect me. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if that was what was being communicated to us you know, in the film or in the play or whatever. But yeah, it's, it's interesting because it is that sort of thing where it's like, I don't think anything really gets resolved. Um, you know, but it's, it's, it's that thing too, where this movie also made me want to read more about David Hampton. And yeah. I'm really glad that I got to read about him. Cause I actually didn't know a lot about him at all. Um, I knew it was about someone, but I didn't really kind of go down the road of, of finding out, the details. I love this movie and I do love Bruce Davidson's character in this movie just constantly says, I don't want to know whenever anybody talks about the kid and the kid's lives. Like, I don't want to know about it. Yeah. It's just very funny. A funny beat to kind of emphasize the the willingness of, of these rich, richer parents to kind of shy away from the true facts of their lives and their kids' lives. Yeah, there's there's so many good people in this movie. I mean, besides like, you know, obviously like the lead characters. I mean, there's like people showing up all over the place like Anthony Rapps in this movie like Richard Massors in this movie like there's a lot yeah. of great actors and so um you know it's it's a real it's a real treat if you do, if you haven't seen it in a while or haven't seen it and we're always curious you got to watch it i think it's i think it's awesome i agree oh my god i can't not wait to talk about your movie well we're going to do it right now my film for this theme of true crime is from 1973 was directed and written by terrence malick and the film is badlands he was 25 years old he combed his hair like james dean he was very fastidious people who littered bothered him she was 15 she took music lessons and could twirl a baton i'm kid i'm not keeping you from anything important am i no. She wasn't very popular at school. For a while, they lived together in a treehouse. In 1959, they murdered a lot of people. Badlands. Been pushing out. Sorry, that's the Spruce song. All right. We're, putting, we're keeping that in. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> so, this film. Which, before we get into the film, I need to give a very brief synopsis of the crimes that it is based upon, because um, that is important here. And this is really a, a movie that is based on the real-life crimes of Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate, who killed 11 people in one year, 10 in the last week alone that they were traveling from Nebraska through Wyoming. Um, Charles was 19. Carol Ann was 16. Um, the first person that Charles killed was a gas station attendant. And then he just kind of amped it up and killed Carol Ann's mother, stepfather, and he also stabbed and strangled her two-year-old sister, Betty. So this dude is just bad mm. news. Fugate would later say that she was kidnapped, but Starkweather says that she was in on it the whole time. They were dating. They were a couple. This was planned. And both were eventually convicted. Starkweather, you know, they were caught. Starkweather says that she was in on it the whole time and it wasn't just him. So he got the electric chair for the murders and Fugate got a life sentence 
uh, but she only served 17 years and was released in 1976. And she's 76 right now. She's still alive. Uh, She married a machinist. And just last year, she petitioned for a pardon and was denied because she wants to she doesn't want to be associated with this part of her life anymore. But guess what? Too bad. Mm. Um, So this film is listed as one of the most influential movies of all time. It inspired films like The Sadist from 1963, California from 1993, Natural Born Killers 1994, um, Starkweather, which was released in 2004, and even the Bruce Springsteen song Nebraska. Mm. Uh, But I think that the, the movie is beautiful, but the crimes are horrific and it needs to be said that this is the real life crime that it was based on so that we can kind of understand some of the changes and choices that were made in the film that helped it become a very beautiful piece of art, um, but it told a very different story. <laughs> yeah, sure. A very different story. So this movie stars Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek, whom we love. love. Uh, Martin Sheen plays Kit Carruthers. Sissy Spacek plays Holly. And they, Holly is, in the movie, they've changed the ages. So Holly's 15 and Kit is 25. And they meet in South Dakota when, um, Holly and her sign painter dad move from Texas after the grief of her mother's death just becomes too much for him. And he kind of wants a fresh start. So Holly is also our our narrator for this film, which makes everything kind of have like a very simple boiled down to basic teenage feelings quality. Um, Like it kind of looks in the beginning like everyone's kind of bored. Not like you can understand why they'd go out on a murder spree, but like there's not a lot going on there mm. <laughs> in this town. And Kit is this, uh, you know, this this 25 year old, smooth, carefree guy. He's picking up garbage. He loses that job. He becomes a ranch hand like he's just kind of floating through life. And, um, you know, he 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 meets Holly just on a whim, like after work one day, he rounds a corner and there she is in her yard twirling a baton. And he's just instantly taken with her and asks her out. Holly, for her part, is pretty shy. Like she's not instantly like, yeah, like I'm a bad kid. I'm going to go out and do it. She keeps to herself. She doesn't seem to have any friends. Um, she's new in town. And, you know, her, her life is with her dad and they have a pretty good relationship. Um, but she meets this guy who just like, wins her over he just charms the absolute socks off of her and her dad can't stand it he in a brutal scene kills her dog as a punishment when he finds out that holly is seeing kit kit does try to like win over the dad too but the dad is not having it (laughs) he is not having it at all so kit's response to that is to show up at holly's house uh shoot Holly's dad, murdering him and lighting the house on fire and leaving with Holly. And they're on the run from that moment on. And in the film, they have these really strange beats of of a time that's lost, I think, where like, for example, Kit leaves a full recorded message in like a phone booth recording studio about what they did and says they're going to go kill themselves. So from the beginning, you kind of get the feeling that like he has a plan that she's not in on. And his plan is just murder with abandon. Um, But when he says he's going to kill kill themselves, like they're going to kill themselves. It really to me, the first time I saw it and even now. It really reads because of the way that Martin Sheen acts in this film as if he's like, I'm I will kill her before I let her go. Um, Like, I will have someone with me on this journey, like it or not. 
So that's kind of this, the synopsis um, of this film that gets them in this life on the road. And in the movie, again, very different from real life. But in the movie, they're traveling from South Dakota to Montana, which is why it's called Badlands, because they're going through the Badlands. And we really kind of pick up with them in this moment after all this this intense murder and, you know, just it just goes so so quickly after that, you know, kind of the slow build that goes to this this murder place. And then we just kind of see them living in the woods and trying to make a life for themselves. And, um, you know, they build a treehouse and kind of live in the woods and have chickens and, you know, have animals and stuff. And they they're kind of trying to like cosplay as a young couple in love who's just rough in it but it still has kind of a sinister edge because there's no plan and they're on the run now this is where my one of my fever notes kicks in because hmm. i kind of like like oh i kind of drowsed in and out and woke up and i was i said i wrote down i wish the movie ended here i bet one of them hit the ground rolling out of that bed a few times but that's the worst that could have happened to them in the woods stay in the beauty place guys yeah I just stay in the woods. Have your relationship. You did kill some people. It's fucked up. Yeah. But if you just stay here, according to my fever, you'll be okay. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. And they they did create that like kind of little paradise for themselves. Um, you know, like they had their little booby traps and the, and their chicken cages and, and their bed, their elevated bed. You know, I was reading a little bit about... Um, sort of the concept of this movie. And, you know, I think Terrence Malick talks about how the movie is supposed to sort of feel like a fairy tale. Yeah. We know a lot of fairy tales are secretly scary and are about scary things and scary concepts, right? Like, you know, grandmothers and poison apples and wolves and that kind of stuff. So Yeah, they're cautionary tales. Yeah, they're cautionary tales. And honestly, to your fevered point... You know, in a way, they probably would have if they had just kind of stayed right, like yeah. in this environment. They could have been all right. And I think it's it's this is not a movie that examines motivation very much. Um, but again, I think that because of the narration um, from the point of view of this teenage girl and the kind of the beautiful, like sweeping vistas and colors and that real desert, like kind of prairie feel to this film um, that you kind of feel like they're out of time in a way like they're out of time they're they're out of step with the rest of the world yeah um so i think it could have i don't know i feel like it could have been the motivation for them to be together um made more sense to me in the context of the film than it did in the context of the crime totally you know i think that that's something that terrence malick did and and does very well but this you know this beautiful place they can't stay in the beauty place despite my what my fever wants because they <laughs> they have three they happen upon three guys uh in the woods they see one guy fishing you know like while they're kind of fishing and catching across the river they see this dude um who comes back with two of his friends and it's not clear to me whether he comes back because he sees them as the criminals or because they're kind of I think throughout the movie there where we do get treated to people who are painted as bounty hunters who are specifically looking for them. But I think these guys just kind of like were dudes in the woods who saw a young couple they could fuck up. And um, he comes back with his two friends and Kit murders them. Like they have this whole system set up of like, you know, hiding spots and, you know, Holly's hiding over here and he's got his gun and he's kind of like in a little little bunker that's hidden by leaves and he kills these three guys and 
instantly they're back on the run again um, without much of a thought to what who these guys were or what they were doing. He's just like he convinces Holly that they're they're bounty hunters. They were going to kill us. Um, So we had to do it. And let's get our stuff. Let's let the chicken free and let's go. But yeah, it's um, it's just an interesting it's just that those scenes to me. Yeah, it kind of has me feeling different types of ways about it. I mean, it feels cozy and like a fairy tale in a lot of ways for them, but it also feels like they're waiting to be hunted. Yeah. Um, They can't relax at all. I guess it's not a relaxing sort of idyllic paradise. It is a fairy tale in that the setting is beautiful, but the events that are happening around them and to them are terrible. They're terrible. And I, I, I really love that um, the way that that was framed in this movie, because it's not it doesn't help you get comfortable with them at all. Like I always felt kind of fidgety when I was watching the this movie for the first time. And even now, like I just felt like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen next. That, that this doesn't feel entirely safe. Yeah. And so I dig that dig that feeling. But, you know, he kills these three guys. They're on the run again. And he ends up going to hang out with his friend Cato, who he knew from uh, when they were picking up garbage together, um, kills him. That ends horribly. Yes. <laughs> they kill him in this house he's house sitting in. And again, this is where we get this this huge like desert prairie feel, which just is so gorgeous. And, um, you know, it's kind of a, it's a real tragedy when he when he dies, I think, beca- for me, because he was just so innocently like thinking he could hang out with his friend, certainly probably heard the news about them. And so when he shows up at the doorstep, you can tell that Cato's just like faced with this choice he does not want to make. He tries to play it cool with them and like, you know, showing them around the premises of where he's he's house sitting. Um, but Kit kills him. And then when these two, this couple shows up to kind of visit Cato, he throws them in a hole in the ground and covers it up with some wood and then just shoots into the hole, doesn't even know if he's killed them. That's how ruthless this dude is. Yeah. It's just ruthlessness. And I think that, you know, this is where it becomes crystal clear if it wasn't before that he's Kit's a full sociopath. Mm-hmm. And we get into that a little bit more later, talking about like his again the the motivation and the kind of the story he's built up around himself. Um, but he is just kind of unhinged in this moment. Like he's just unlocked, uncorked. And my fever note here is I like the way Martin Sheen puts on his jacket. Oh, because he just like throws. Uh, maybe we could post a video or something. But he just like he throws it around his back and like pops his arms in, and he does it in every movie he's ever been in. But I noticed it first here <laughs> when I first saw this. Ooh, I gotta tell you, Martin Sheen. Jesus, Martin Sheen is so beautiful in this film. Uh, beautiful and enigmatic. His accent, his swag, his everything in this movie. Martin Sheen is so fucking attractive. Uh, he, you know, they keep kind of comparing him to James Dean. And I knew yeah. that the real Martin Sheen was like kind of he began his career sort of idolizing James Dean. But I was like, damn, he is he's got that look. He's got the hair. Um, he's super fucking cool with the cigarettes and those boots like those like fucking so boots cool. that he's like, I'm not I'm only taking jobs that let me wear these boots. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how that's the ethos that with, with, with which he lives his life <laughs> which you know what i don't blame you dude you gotta be comfortable i know and then again you've got this you know this thing that i i didn't read a lot about um but i wonder about is that martin sheen is not a white man <laughs> 
Yep. And he had to alter a lot of his his self to be to have the career that he has. And I think he has talked about that. Um, so Emilio taking his name was a big deal, I think, for him in the 80s because um, Charlie didn't. And, you know, he he thought about it. He thought about what is it to be, you know, Martin Estevez yeah. <laughs> versus Martin Sheen and have this Hollywood experience. They did that a lot in old Hollywood where like yeah. they had a, a really long last name, like, you know, Jane Clappen Dougal or and then they just became like Clark Gable or whatever. You know, they used to do that a lot. Clappen Dougal. But especially people of color like Rita Hayworth and you know Totally. Absolutely a hundred percent. And I think that there he he did mention that, you know, I think that that was disappointing to his father that he kind of gave up his name. But apparently it's still his legal name. He didn't yeah. fully change it to Martin Sheen. So exactly. But it's uh, just so wonderful to watch him in this role. And I think that there's there's this this scene where um, as we get towards the end of the film and they're about to get caught, there's kind of this this helicopter chase scene where this helicopter is swooping in and kind of chasing them through a desert. And um Holly gives up. Holly's just like, I'm turning myself in. I don't want to do this anymore. And Martin Sheen's, he acts heartbroken in his face in a way I've never seen before, but it's so quick. It's such quick moves. And he has such delicate features. (laughs) And it is like, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to watch both he and Sissy Spacek in this film. Um, They're both incredible actors. And to see them working together in this way was really, really cool. but she gives up and I have a fever note here as well because Kit keeps driving uh, and he's like, look, if you want to get with me, meet me at this bridge on this date. Like he thinks he's in the free and clear. And this is like part of the hubris of this this guy that he's like, I'll come back for you. Not I'm not hearing that you don't want to be with me anymore and you don't want to do this. I'm coming back for you like it or not. Yeah. Um, so my fever note is. I remember these colors from one of the times I drove cross country. I don't think I could have murdered in the midst of all that pretty. (laughs) Guys, be careful with the second vaccine. (laughs) You were on one, girl. I am a professional writer and this is the shit that was coming out of me. (laughs) No, but I I get it. I mean, I know that you've obviously you drove from New York to Alaska. So you've seen a lot of this country and that in this region. Um, and I too, I drove, I've driven through the badlands before myself and it is stunning. Like to, to Absolutely. the degree where I, you just can't even believe that this is, you know, a country that you live in. And, you know, it is that juxtaposition of like, Man, they're in this most beautiful territory. I mean, I think they actually filmed it in Colorado or something like that, but it's the yeah. same concept, just that part of the world. Um, but that, you know, they're, ha- they're they're not able to really take in everything because they're on the run. Yeah. And they're stressed out. Absolutely. And it is. It's it's you're seeing the beauty in flashes and you're seeing the beauty in a frenzy. And it is very, very, a very interesting way to see what is typically kind of a slower part of the world where you can take your time with things and you can drink in the beauty and you can sit with your thoughts a little more and they're just hustling through (laughs) through it and kicking up dust. And it's wild. It's wild. Um, I do love that when Kit is caught eventually, he puts rocks on the road to indicate 
where they caught him. And it's like it's like as if he's writing his biography in real time. Yep. He so believes his own the myth of who he is uh, that he is just like, I'm going to stack these rocks here. So you guys know where to point out that this is where you caught me. It is, again, something that's very layered in this movie and that builds as the movie goes on. But he is so egotistical in a way that just pushes into psychopathy very quickly. Yeah. It's because of this. This is why I think uh, that it makes sense that this movie influenced movies like Natural Born Killers and California because it's basically making celebrity out of murderers. Right. Exactly. And, you know, obviously that would be explored a lot in the movies that came after this one. But I think that this was one of the first movies. I mean, obviously you do have stuff like Bonnie and Clyde and you have the concept of like, you know, beautiful criminals. I mean, that that happened many, many times in Hollywood before this movie came out. But it does lend itself to like there is like a, a specific vibe to this movie because it is beautiful and it's well acted and it's, um you know, everybody looks great. And every there's kind of this mutedness to it, too. Mm. That is really attractive to me. It's very it's paced very well. It's very slow moving and gorgeous and sort of, you know, these aren't people that are these are people who are speaking you know, in muffled kind of Southern accents and they're and they're playing it very cool, even in moments of tenseness, like you're, you're still seeing Martin Sheen just be like that cool customer. And it, it, to me, that is sort of like, oh, my God, like you're there's some vibe here that I love, even though it is about violent people. Right. Yeah, because it's, it's a great it, I mean, it is a I don't know how I want to say I guess it's like it's a way to showcase that you know, that way of life or where they come from, it doesn't necessarily impact how they behave in this space. And it's so it's wild to see him like brandishing guns at people that he's going to kill and calling them sir and ma'am and being very kind and quiet and um, seeing that brush up against all of this, like the pinks and the oranges and like the, the, the fiery, the fiery nature of the sky and the landscape is also kind of now you're seeing it kind of become this tornado within these two characters and it's really cool yeah i i mean i have to say i am completely charmed by the martin sheen character like the end of the film where he's caught and he's in the airplane hangar and all those soldiers and police officers are fucking interviewing him oh yeah they're like like he's he is kind of a celebrity to them yeah and they are like loosening his cuffs and they are you know allowing him to say what he needs to say and they're treating him like a buddy like this came from the war or something yeah like yo go you know he's like can i get a coke they're like sure dude you know he's he's like they're asking him hey are you married and you know uh, he's throwing his comb he's like anybody want my comb anybody want my lighter and they're like hell yeah like i mean he's a celeb it's wild and he he knows it because when he's caught he tells the the police officers that catch him like hey you did it you caught me like Mm -hmm. you know i'm gonna say nice things about you and of course they're like man fuck this guy (laughs) but yeah the two that catch him are like i do not fucking care like get in the car (laughs) they look at him like he's insane Because he is. Yeah. And but he's that charming. And that and and you're just under his spell the entire film. And, you know, at this point when you know he's bad and he's done bad things and he's done, you know, grisly murders, um, he's just flashing that smile and he's got that little tight little uh uh white t shirt on and he's smoking cigarettes and I you know, and I'm just like, 
He's got it, man. Like, I, I oof, it's it's really hard for me. That's a great choice by Malik, too, though, is to, you know, to have that's a smart move if you're trying to make a movie about the celebrity of murder is to give the charm to this character that looks so boyish and is doing such gruesome shit. You know, like yeah. he is such he's so young in this movie, not just because we know what he looks like now, but he's so young in this film and he pulls off the boyishness effortlessly. Like there's a scene in the beginning where um, he's sitting down with like a, a job, like a, an officer or somebody who's trying to, you know, get him hired at the unemployment office. And the guy's like, you know, so what do you want to do? And he's like, I don't know. And he just says it in like such a way that you're like, oh, don't make him do anything. He's fine. <laughs> he just wants to wear those boots. He just wants to hang out with his friends and wear those boots and be be cute. Like, just let him get away with it. Um, before the murders, of course, but just like, no, don't make him work. He's fine. He'll find a way. Yeah. But he does. He kind of charms everyone. And I don't think he can help it. And I don't think he even knows he's doing it. It's like this, this rapid action kind of reflex that he has as a way to get what he needs in life which is a very interesting way to live either as a both as a criminal and as a you know the character in this film is that he has to count on his charm to get by because he doesn't ever have jobs and he doesn't have a way to support himself and he needs things that he can't attain so much of this movie for me is is the idea that it we do hear the narration from Sissy Spacek's character. Because I feel in that moment, like when she's talking in this movie, she's coming from a very innocent place. I mean, she's like 15 years old and she meets this older guy who's super charming and handsome and looks like James Dean. And he just wants to hang out with her and be around her. And I felt that. What's strange, too, is that I never felt passion from Holly in this film. So that's a very strange thing to see people who are in this very intense romantic situation, but it doesn't feel like love. It feels very desperate to me. So that's also like a choice that was made. And um, I liked it. Like I liked not feeling comfortable in who they were to each other even because there's no guarantee of what's going to happen um, because, you know, Holly's just kind of very, very fair weather, teenage girl vibes in this like she definitely is not landing hard on I love you I'll be with you forever like she's like horrified that he killed her dad and terrified about all the stuff they're going through so there is a love but it feels more like infatuation and infatuation with this man and with this life and with the kind of adventure of it instead of the person which I think is why it's so easy for her to give up at the end and kind of say like I don't want to do this anymore. Like I kind of sucked all I could out of this experience and I'm done. I'm done with it and I'm done with you. And um, in the film, Holly is not charged. And in her narration, she says that she goes on to marry the son of the lawyer who defended her. And my fever note, one of my last, my last fever notes is what is this movie saying about love and responsibility? And why does everyone always want to give white women a happy ending? (laughs) Hmm. Like, yeah. it's a strange thing. Like, they, they, this is a film that's also been studied not just for its beauty, but for romanticizing murder and for being part of what kicked off this lineage of films that romanticize murder and relationships in that way. Um, so it did make me wonder, like, why, why do we always want to artistically kind of land in a place where there's some kind of happiness for someone? 
even if you have another guy sitting in an electric chair. Because it, it's not it's not clear to me, I guess, that this film in that moment became so much about Holly, which I guess it always has been because she's the narrator. But it became so much about Holly in that moment that Kit, it, it was kind of a brilliant move because Kit does not get to be the celebrity even of his own film, <laughs> like even of his own life in this film. She's the focus at the end. Yeah. So it was very interesting choice, I thought, to make. Well, yeah. And, and if you think about it in the context of it being a fairy tale. Right. In the fairy tale, there has to be a happy ending. There has to be something. Right. And if we think about Holly being this young woman who, you know, basically was bored and twirling her baton before she met this guy, she would have a happy ending in, in the context of a fairy tale. Now, that is divorced from real life, obviously. And in real life, there's different things happening. But, you know, if the movie is centered around a true fairy tale narrative, then she probably would, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. I love it. I love this movie. I think it's a beautiful movie to pop on when you just want that that feeling of kind of whimsy, um, which is a very strange thing to say about a movie that is about murder <laughs> and a real life crime. Um, but I just, I dig this movie. And if you've never seen it, I highly recommend watching it. Well, it's one of my faves. And, you know, I'm I'm so glad that you picked it for this theme. Always going to love Sissy Spacek, my girl in there <laughs> doing her thing. You know, we love her. So, um, yeah, what a perfect movie for this theme. Yay. Well, do you want to tell folks what our movies are for next week? The movies for next week's episode are Mermaids from 1990 and In Young from 1976. Do you want to spell that one for him? Oh, yeah. It's spelled <laughs> I-N-S-I-A-N-G. And Mermaids is M-E-R-M-A-I-D-S. <laughs> Just in case you're confused. Um, but those are the movies. I know that one of them is probably likely going to be a new title for a lot of people. But I say keep an open mind. Check it out. It's out there in the world. So, you know, again, um, you know, just type it into Google. I'm sure you'll be able to find a way to watch it. And then come back and listen to us talk about it. That's right. And um, also, you know, just to kind of go through all of the socials once again, if you want to email us, it's I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. If you want to uh, find us on Instagram and Twitter, it's I saw pod. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. And really helps us a lot. Um, and yeah, and so, and if you, you know, we have merch. If you go to the Exactly Right website and go to the shop, you'll find all of our selections there. And you can also still listen to our bonus episodes, which are available only on Stitcher Premium. Uh, and you can use the promo code SAW, that's S-A-W, if you want to give it a try. You get a free month of Stitcher Premium. Then you can hear all of the stuff we've been talking about for months. <laughs> yeah, all of the secret conversations we've been having away from the main feed. But yeah, Danielle, it was, as always, it was a total pleasure. So glad to be talking about these true crime movies with you. Yeah, it's the best. And we will see everybody next week. Bye. Bye. Mark one. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our social media manager is Taryn Mazza. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. 
Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. Email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 